If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Marie Antoinette is one of the most famous queens of the 18th century, and she often overshadows the other women in her family. But according to the historian Nancy Goldstone, they should perhaps demand just as much attention. In her new book, she explores the life of the Habsburg Empress Maria Theresa, a formidable force on the European stage. Alongside her daughters, Maria Christina, who became Governor General of the Austrian Netherlands, Maria Carolina, Queen of Naples, and Marie Antoinette herself. Putting the questions to Nancy was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. You've written that everyone's heard of Marie Antoinette, of course, but her mother is is much less well-known and her sisters have have actually been quite routinely ignored. Um, But you, you say that this is a shame because Marie Antoinette was actually the least interesting and perhaps we can, (laughs) we can start there. Well, it's not that she, I mean, her life ends up being very interesting, of course, but um, yes, I think her, I, when I started this book, I did, I, the reason I um, wrote about the sisters, her sisters, as well as her mother was because I have been doing this long enough now. I've, I've been coming up through the centuries and I understand that 
if you write, that's why when I did Catherine de' Medici and Marguerite de Valois, you, if you can carry through to the next generation, you really understand what, how everything plays out and why. And um, so I, I am embarrassed to admit that I didn't really even think about Marie Antoinette having sisters because she's such a huge person, it's such a huge personality. She takes all the oxygen out of the room. And, uh, but, but her sisters were actually amazing. Um, I only was there, she had, she had seven, there were seven of them all together, but I, I, I focused on the ones who are really in political, who are, who are political powers, because I'm very interested in how women in power worked in these centuries. And that's why I always do queens or empress in this case. And um, so I was just struck by uh, how the other sisters also had to deal with everything that Marie Antoinette had to deal with. And in, and in one case, more, <laughs> um, and how they handled it. So it was and, and the mother, of course, Maria Teresa, she she had one of the most um, vivid experiences coming into into power that I have ever read about, so I've ever learned about. So I loved reading about them Absolutely. and writing about them. Absolutely, me too. And so if we go to Maria Theresa to start then, um, this is, as you've mentioned, your, your sixth book of European history. Um, could you give us a sense of the Europe that uh, Maria Theresa was born into and her status in that? Well, what was so interesting about Maria Theresa was that she um, was a Habsburg, and she's coming into a period where the Habsburgs are, when she's first born, the Habsburgs are still very, very powerful, but they have just come off um, Louis XIV. The Sun King has just come in and taken half of their property by, by taking over Spain and the New World. And so Maria Theresa's father it, it has, a, has less property at um and has less subjects and less um, inheritance to give out afterwards than almost any other Habsburg before this. Because, but he still has a, a huge amount of property. He owns. He is uh, Archduke of Austria. He's King of Hungary. He's King of Bohemia. He's got um, the Austrian Netherlands, which is basically Belgium and Flanders. He's got parts of Italy. This is a large inheritance. But he had also used to have, or the Habsburgs used to have a member of the family used to have Spain and the New World and um, and Southern Italy. And there was all, just a lot of, of territory that he, that the Habsburg no longer commanded. And her father has the additional problem was he can't, he can't have a son. He, for, he keeps trying and trying and, and, um, and all he's got are these two daughters which is a catastrophe in their minds, of course. Um, and so he has to leave his property to his daughter. And she's only 23 years old. Uh, he's completely untrained for this. She's pregnant with her fourth child when he suddenly dies and she inherits everything. And um, immediately the other major powers, not Britain, but we can get to that. The other major powers all decide to attack her at the same time because you know, on the grounds that she's a woman and too weak to to defend her property, too weak to rule, she shouldn't be ruling. So they all defend, they all invade her at the same time. And I love her because she just <laughs> she whacks them back. I will. She just she will not give up, and um, she eventually survives that. And who would not want to write 
that story, really. Uh, so I, that was where we started from. That's where she starts from. Yes, she's a pretty formidable woman. And and if we can pick up on um, how she reacts to these invasions, or perhaps one antagonist in particular, Frederick the Great, uh, who seems to pop up uh, so much throughout your account. What What is the uh, the relationship and, and uh, situation there? Well, all historians love Frederick the Great because um, not only is he completely amoral and double-dealing and great copy, but he does it all with a sardonic one-liner at the, at the end. So uh, he's just so much fun to read about. But Frederick the Great, he actually, it's very sad, Frederick. Um, Frederick was gay, and his father did not want him to be gay and and um, abused him terribly. I mean, I, I'm not going to go into the story, but, um, and it turned Frederick from who was actually, you know, a very intelligent guy who loved poetry and music and beautiful things. And it turned him very dark. And, and he decides when he becomes king, his father, in addition to that, has left him all this money and this huge army, which the father had never used because Prussia at that time was, you have to think of Prussia was just a, was not a big player in anything, was just a little regional power. And Frederick decides he's, when Maria Theresa um, comes to power, he can just go in there and take part of her property and there'll be no problem at all. And she ends up fighting him. This, this is a war. What's so interesting about the War of the Austrians in Succession, which is, starts in um, 1740s, and, um, but goes on for two, there's a brief hiatus after seven years, and then they start all over again with the... Um, Seven Years' War, it's the same basic war, and it's all about whether a woman should be allowed to, to inherit. I mean, that's it, really. Should a woman be allowed to inherit property? This is the first one I can think of because she's the first one who ever, anybody ever tried to leave their um, subjects and their realms to. And, and he just, he is her nemesis. And she comes at it, um, she just she just wants to defend herself. She doesn't want other people's property. She wants to defend her property, and she wants to be able to have a chance to bring improvements to her subjects. Whereas Frederick is very opportunistic, and he just wants to um, get as much property as he can. He also he also tries to you know he wants a strong state, but he's much more interested in glory and and getting a large getting getting other people's territory and improving and, and making Prussia a, a big power. And so she is ends up being in this arms race with him and having to try and try to um, bring him down, try to defend herself and try to actually stop him. She, if she hadn't been there to try to, and to really stop him, I think Frederick would have just, if it had been her father or somebody, I think he would have just walked over whoever was there. But she really um, fought him. She and and so Prussia doesn't actually take over until the next century. But <laughs> you know, this, this in this time she stops them, which is fabulous. Can we talk a little bit more about how she does that? Then there's this really um, very interesting uh, gambit. I'm not sure if that's the right word. She makes in Hungary. Um, can we say something about yes. that? She so Frederick invades. Frederick pretends that he um, that he's pretends to be her friend when she when she first inherits the property. Pretends to be her friend, but at, at the same time, um, 
raises, gets his army together. I mean, he got his army. She, I think she inherited it on, in November and with, and within eight days, he had his plan together. He had his general picked. He had his army coming together. And, and within two weeks after that, he's just marched into Silesia, which is where, which was her property. And, and at the same time, um, and she, and she gives battle to him there and, he wins that battle, although he was not there because um, Frederick came with his troops. This was going to be his first big battle, and he's very he, he he's got he's very excited. He starts the ch- charge. The Austrian cavalry, which is very practiced, charges against him, and he gets scared and runs away. He gets on his horse, and he just leaves his army and flees and ends up in a mill somewhere, you know, miles away. And his general is actually the one who who continues the battle and wins the battle, so that they said when Frederick actually, they had to go find Frederick and tell him that he had won the battle. And he, they said he returned all covered in fame and flour from the mill. Um, but but because he won that battle, when, when you won a battle in the 18th century, every all of a sudden you got a lot of allies. So he's, they, they, the French decide that it would be a great idea to... Um, ally with Frederick because he's already doing such a good job. They can come in and take some stuff. Bavaria decides that they can come in and take some stuff. Saxony comes out. They can come in and take some stuff. So they're all, she's got all these, Maria Theresa, all of a sudden she has all these different armies marching on her. And she has no, her father, of course, who loved her, has no more troops. It did left her hardly any troops, left her, left her hugely in debt. She's got almost nothing. So what she does is she goes to, um, but she is queen of Hungary. She did inherit Hungary. So she goes over to the Hungarians to ask them to help her. Now, Hungary, her advisors, who she inherited from her father, they're like, no, you can't go to Hungary. You, because um, those the Hungarians were viewed as being very um, rebellious. And they just as soon turn on the Austrians as help them. And but Maria Theresa, she she said, no, I'm their queen. I, I respect them. I, I, she dresses up in Hungarian colors. She brings an entire entourage there. She gets herself crowned queen, which is which is a great ceremony where um, she has to put on this really old robe of St. Stephen and she goes to the church and she, and she is, Maria Teresa was was very smart, intelligent woman and she is, she knew a lot of languages and she knew Latin and that was the, the language that in which they could, she communicated with the Hungarians. So she was able to do the whole service in their language. And afterwards, the the really key element of the coronation ceremony was that she gets on a horse, she has to get on a horse, still wearing the robe with the with the and with a big sword, the, the sword of Saint Stephen, and she has to gallop up a hill and wave that store, sword in four directions in order to um, show that she will protect Hungarians from enemies from all sides. I mean, it's just such a great picture. And she and and she had just been she had just given birth to her first child, a son, finally, and, and so they are the Hungarians because she completely captures their hearts and and then. She asks them for soldiers, and the way she does it is she brings her new 
she like it wasn't even six months old, her son, and she brings him in front of the diet, which is their their governing body, and she lifts him up in the air and says, This is my, you know, please help me. And she says it all in Latin, this wonderful speech in Latin. I will help me now, and I will always defend you. And here is the symbol of my of our relationship, the child. And the Hungarians just go crazy and they vote her all these soldiers. And the Hungarian soldiers were tough. They were tough guys. And all of a sudden, the Bavarians and the French say, ooh, we have to fight the Hungarians? <laughs> I don't, you know, so it changes the whole war strategy. And that was, the, that was her first um, step um, in, in fighting back. So she really was, she really did it. It's a, such a colorful, I, I hope somebody ends up filming it. I'd love to see it, wouldn't you? To see her. Uh, you know, with her, they had her hair blonde, all this hair, blonde hair streaming behind her and with the sword. I think it's terrific. So I'd love to see that too. I wonder yeah. if any producers are listening. <laughs> um, okay, so if that is a, a, a wonderful sort of snippet uh, into her um, approach to foreign policy and military matters, um, I wonder if we can look at her a bit in terms of her own rule. Uh, there was this, there was one aspect that I found fascinating. Um, you write that she appointed. Uh, an official whose job was whose entire job was to critique her behavior and her own rules so what does that tell us about her sort of approach to um her role i wasn't that wonderful i thought that was the most impressive thing about her because you see what we have because what she did was she she knew that her her father had made just a series of terrible decisions and she had watched him um, lose one fight after another and get into all kinds of crazy schemes that he should never. And she recognized that it was because his counselors, his counsel, just let him do, they were just, um, they just let him do whatever he wanted to. And they just, they just wanted to keep their own positions. They, they never confronted him. They just encouraged him to do whatever he wanted to do. And she said, that's just not the way to do it. I need someone to tell me when I'm making a mistake. And I would need someone to show me um, when my behavior goes wrong. And can you imagine, and no other, first of all, can you imagine everyone doing that with Frederick the Great? No, never would he have somebody. Or even today, would any count, you know, would any um, a, a, uh, leader really get somebody in there who, uh, hopefully they have someone who will tell them the truth, but she actually employed someone. She told him that he did not want that job. There's nobody wants a job. That's not, a, that's not, not the way to advancement to tell your sovereign that they've that they shouldn't speak that way to someone else or that they've made a mistake in the and and um but he took it on and she he made her friend her whole life it was Count Taruka was his name and and he did it he he told her when she was um out of line he told her when she wasn't making decisions properly when she was making decisions too passionately he told her take a breath stop think about it, then approach it. I mean, it was just, I, I thought that was, um, I thought that was such a, a wonderful um, com uh, comment on her behavior and on, on who she was. She really, really wanted to do a great job. Maria Teresa read every paper that passed her desk. She chaired her own council meetings. She made every policy decision. She agonized over it. I mean, the job eventually engulfed her. It was it was a huge job for her. But I never saw anybody try so hard. And and she mostly succeeded. And I, the reason there was peace for a long time after after the end of the Seven Years' War was because of her, or as much as it as it could be. 
um, I thought she was that, that I think now she had some things really wrong with her. I will tell you right up. She, she was horrible about religion, especially not just to, um, the Protestants. She was very Catholic. She was very religious, very pious, and she believed everybody should be Catholic. So she was, she was terrible to, um, Protestants and she was really terrible to Jews. She would. She wanted to kick all the Jews out. She was horribly anti-Semitic. Um, she and when they wouldn't let her kick out, when her advisors talked to her calmly, when Taruka and all these people said, "No, no, you need," she she made them pay um, extra fines. You know, she never. They couldn't. No, no Protestant or no Jew could hold positions in government. Now it was kind of the reverse of what you had in in England at the time, actually, because you had to be Church of England at that time to hold a position in government. But um, she was just, it was just, that was not a, a that, that was a, a really black mark against her. And she just couldn't, she couldn't get over that. And that was a product of her education, but it didn't matter. She should have been able to, I, I'm not saying she should have been able to, but that was something that she could not, could not stop. And it was a time when tolerance was just coming into being. It was the enlightenment. They were just starting. Her son was very tolerant um, after he took over. But she just couldn't do it. And so you have to, whenever you consider Maria Theresa, no matter how, and I do think she was just such a strong and a good leader, this is a huge black mark on her. Another uh, interesting factor, not a flaw per se, but perhaps linked into that um, theme of tolerance. Um, her celibacy commission, where did that come from? <laughs> um, you know, maybe we can talk about her husband so, and her relationship. Right. So Maria Theresa was one of the few... Um, princesses who got to marry for love. She married Francis Stephen of Lorraine. He had no real he no real property. In fact, he had to sign away his property. He had to sign away Lorraine in order to marry her, which was um, something he did not want to do, but was kind of forced on him by her father. And he was actually. She was engaged to him almost from the time she was six and he was like 13 or 14. And so she adored him. She just adored him. And, and, and for a long time, he was, he, and he loved her and he was so supportive during the early years of the marriage. But the, Maria Theresa ended up having 16 children in 20 years. And that's going to take a toll on, you know, and, and also she's working all the time. And Francis, her husband, started cheating. And he cheated, you know, pretty regularly. And she couldn't, she couldn't bear it. And first she tries the tears and then and, and all that with him and, and, and tries to make him feel bad. And he would apologize, but he would do it again and again. So what she did was she, she decided to legislate that all men should have to be, um, should, should have to be monogamous to their, you know, should never be able to cheat on their no adultery in Vienna. So she she does this kind of chastity commission where she sends out um, what will eventually evolve into the secret police to go and if you were a, a single single woman walking the streets, even if you weren't uh, you know a prostitute, they bundled you out of town. She would invade people's parties, it, their homes while they were having dinner parties to make sure that nobody, there was no fooling around going there. Any soldier that went to a brothel that she caught him, got, lost his commission. It was just ridiculous. It didn't last for very long. And I, I, the funniest thing was that Casanova happened to be in, in Austria at that time. And boy, did he get out of town fast. That was not his, his idea of a good time. 
So but she, it was, it, she only did it for a little while, but, um, you know, this is where she was at. She was, she, she thought that people should be moral. She, she, she in that sense, she thought that religion was, gave you, gave it, this, her subjects a center and that people should behave in, in a certain way with each other. And, and, you know, unfortunately people don't always behave that way. And that's, Sometimes that's just what happens, and that's their right. You usually don't want to go in and legislate people's private lives. It doesn't work. Sure. So you mentioned it in your last answer that she had uh, 16 children, and, you know, even if she stopped sort of legislating in people's private lives, she certainly had license to legislate uh, or certainly direct her children's lives in a certain type of way. What was she like uh, as a mother, and what were her ambitions and her goals for for these children? I have to admit that Maria Teresa was not a great mother because she played favourites. She really... um, First of all, her eldest son, she raised, because there had been no son in the family for so long, because her father never was able to sire, sire a son. By the time she, and she had, uh, uh, her son with Joseph was her fourth child. So she, she had already had three girls and she was just so grateful to have Joseph, who was, who was her eldest son. Um, she, you know, considered him a gift from God and she raised him as a gift from God. You know, he believed actually he was kind of a gift from God and he did not turn out well. Um, he was very arrogant. He, he, he had no real sympathy for other people. He was, he was a, a kind of an obnoxious guy all the way through. But she also with her daughters played favorites because one of her daughters, Maria, Carol, Maria Christina, who I write about, everybody called Mimi, that was her um, second oldest daughter surviving. Um, Marianne was the eldest, and Marianne was kind of sickly and, and you know, wasn't going to, never got married, had to go into the nunnery. Um, but Maria Christina was talented, an artist, beautiful, you know, graceful, charming. She's, she was a joy to her mother, and her mother leaned on her almost more, not as a daughter, but as a friend. And so Maria Christina gets everything that she wants, gets to marry a guy who has, was so unqualified for, you know, in terms of property and, and wealth and stature for the job of being um, her husband, Albert of Saxony. He was a younger son. He had no chance at any, his family, Frederick the Great took over Saxony. So his family lost. And then Catherine the Great took over Poland, which had also been in their family. So his family just just fell lower and lower and lower. And and yet um, Albert was allowed to marry Maria Christina. And not only that, to make it, I love this. There's one line that Maria uh, Maria Teresa tells her daughter, all her daughters said, never marry a man who has nothing to do. So she gives Albert something to do. She makes him governor general of Hungary. She gives him all this. They give, she gives the couple all this money and, and they become one of the wealthiest. They're, they're so wealthy, they can become like the premier art collecting couple of, of the 18th century. But her other daughters all have to go and marry whoever. And this leads us to Maria Carolina, who is my personal, I, I will say Maria Carolina's story is, like nothing is um, she 
Mary Carolina is 15 years old and she has to go marry the King of Naples. And this guy, Ferdinand, King of Naples, this is a, this is not a guy you want for a husband. You don't want him for a sovereign either. I mean, he was just juvenile and he didn't pay attention, any attention to government. They once asked him, they said, um, they thought, they, her brother asked him, he said, so what have you done to improve the lives of your subjects during your reign? And Ferdinand thought about it for a minute and he said, nothing. Nothing. And he was perfectly happy with that. He would have been perfectly happy to just hunt all day. And he was terrible philander. He gave her, um, he gave his wife um, venereal disease. I mean, he was just, so Maria Carolina at 15, it goes down to Naples, which she, and marries this guy who she, you know, and, and it's not like Marie, Marie Antoinette did not actually um have to consummate the marriage for some time. Maria Carolina at 15 had to consummate it that first night with a guy that she had just met. You know, she, th that was very hard. And um, then she had eventually had to take over the kingdom in order to run it because he would run it and it was going to be him. She was good. A minister was just going to do it. And that's never works. And she was really good. She really tried. She was just like her mother. She read every paper. She chaired her own councils. She um, she tried to improve education. She gave them a navy. Naples had no navy. Naples is on a bet, you know, Naples is a peninsula. It should at least have something for defense, right? They never had a navy before her. Um, so she, um, she did everything right. In fact, she ushered um, the kingdom into its golden age. And then, of course, comes the revolution and Napoleon, and she has to fight every she has to fight everything that Marie Antoinette did, plus Napoleon, um, in order to try to survive. So, I mean, I thought she was she was really terrific. Oh, and she also had all those children. She also had like eighteen children too. So, <laughs> it was you know she was really a lot like her mother. Mother said she's the most like me. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He needs Marie Antoinette. He cannot function without Marie Antoinette by that time. She is his emotional support um, throughout his entire life. Some, but there are times in the, in the revolution where Louis shuts down completely and doesn't speak. And everybody has to go to Marie Antoinette and tell her what they want. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So we've got two uh, formidable daughters there. Maria Cristina, who is the, the um, second surviving daughter. Maria Carolina, who is the 13th child and 10th right. daughter. And so where, where does Marie Antoinette come in? So Marie Antoinette is the youngest daughter. She's the 15th child, I think, yes. And um, and Maria, and, and you know, it just, I think Marie Antoinette, I, Marie Antoinette needs a new publicist, basically. Uh, she, she was, she was only 14 when she marries, when they, her mother arranges for her to be, to marry the Dauphin, who is going to be Louis the 16th. And um, Marie Antoinette was not, um, was not as, uh, a scholar was not Maria Carolina. She re- read every day. Maria Carolina could read. She liked to. She she liked to think. She was she she involved herself. Marie Antoinette did not have an attention span like that. Personally, and I, I didn't put this in the book, but she might have been dyslexic. She really had trouble reading. There's something going on there because she wasn't stupid in any way, but she just, her father wasn't a scholar. Francis, her, her mother's husband, that guy wasn't a scholar. They were social people and they, she was beautiful and charming. So they, when she's 14, she's engaged to be married and they, they send a French tutor to try and, and, and teach her. And you can just watch that man in his reports back go des- more desperate and desperate and desperate. Because what she's good at, she'll learn the curtsies. She learns how she, she's, you know, it was hard, all the protocol. And she learned all that at 14. She could walk into a room and tell you, she learned who everybody was and how she should greet them and, and where they were. But he, she just never could study or anything or, like that. And they send her off to France at 14. She's never been out of Vienna. She's she's never she could she couldn't hardly speak French um, until they they gave her a, 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 a lessons at, right before she got married, which she she did learn she spoke French then, but she goes to Versailles and she is married to Louis the Sixteenth. And the thing about Louis the Sixteenth, and I know that this is I I know this is going to um, this is hard to understand, but Louis the 16th very, I think very strongly believe had autism spectrum disorder. This is a guy who wouldn't, you can read all the records. If you read all the records of observations of his behavior, he never looked anyone in the eye. He barely, he didn't speak at all when he was younger. He uh, shunned, he didn't look, he didn't play with the other children. In fact, he would go up on the roof and chase cats. Later, he would go on the roof and shoot cats. Uh, he, he had, he had to have a very strict routine. Physically, there was something they, that he had all these physical mannerisms and he just perceived, you can see that this is a man who perceived the world differently. Uh, he was very smart. He was highly intelligent, Louis XVI, but 
leadership involves other qualities. You have to be able to look at a leader and he could never speak extemporaneously. He could, he could not make a decision. He relied on the, on the ministers. And um, so he was at such a disadvantage in that way. And on top of all of that, um, he did not understand how sex worked. And, and so Marie Antoinette, and Marie Antoinette's a virgin when she comes. And so the two of them, she couldn't tell him what to do, and he didn't understand what to do. And it would take until her brother came after Louis, after Louis the Fifteenth dies and Louis the Sixteenth takes over. And it was only after that conversation, where he and Marie Antoinette worked on that afterwards, that she became pregnant. So it was very clear. So this is just another sign to me that we have someone who is that Louis the Sixteenth was someone who was um, dealing with autism and 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 needed this kind of an explanation. It, it is an interesting um, situation. And, and yes, it, it sounds like something something's going on there. Um, I wonder if you could offer a few thoughts for our listeners, just because I know that um, sort of judging an individual's um, conditions from a, a position of, of now versus looking back, there are challenges there. What what can you say to listeners about that and um, looking back at Louis's condition? So I understand that diagnosing something from the past where you're not there, you can't bring Louis, too bad, we can't bring Louis in. I wish we could bring Louis in and we could go through the whole um, uh, an examination with a trained person. But you can actually... Um, you can actually observe behavior. For example, in the um, 15th century, Charles VI of France had also a condition. He had a condition. He would, every couple of months, he would uh, lose his um, identity. He would think he was somebody named George, and, or, and he would run around the castle locked up, rave. they would lock him in the castle, he would rave, he would be naked, he didn't know anyone else around him, he, he, he um, rolled in his own feces, he did all this stuff, and today we say, okay, Charles VI very, very likely um, was schizophrenic, and that is what happened, um, and, and we are able to make that condition. Now, if you don't like a label, if you're a person who doesn't like the label of autism spectrum disorder, that's fine. But I point you to, a, a, there's a very funny movie called Analyze This, where, I don't know if you've ever seen it, where Billy Crystal plays a, a psychiatrist and he has to treat Robert De Niro, who is a dangerous mobster. And Robert De Niro, the dangerous mobster, does, if, if Billy Crystal says anything to him as a psychiatrist that Robert De Niro doesn't like, Robert De Niro says he's going to kill him. So Robert De Niro comes to Billy Crystal and he says, I'm having, I'm having these terrible uh, attacks. I, I can't breathe. I'm sweating. My heart's palpitating. I'm shaking. And Billy Crystal says, oh, you're having a panic attack. And Robert De Niro says, panic attack. I would never have a panic attack. And, and Billy Crystal goes, no, 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 no. It's not a panic attack. It's a sweating, breathing hard, um, palpitation, shaking attack. So if you don't like this autism spectrum disorder, that's fine. Just whenever you think about Louis the 16th, think that he is not looking someone in the eye. He is not responding to them. He can Someone can be in the room with him every day for 19 years and he doesn't acknowledge them. He, um, he, he doesn't play with other 
children. You're in, and when he grows up, he doesn't go around with other children. He must have a routine. He had a routine even after they was in prison. They gave him a routine. He could only he had a, needed an emotional support with him all the time. That Marie Antoinette filled that emotional support, or a minister earlier filled that also emotional support. Um, he made weird facial tics. He couldn't address a crowd. He could sit for hours while a crowd screamed and didn't say a word. These are things that this this is the behavior. And then he couldn't. He did not know how to consummate a marriage. He did not know how how to um, have a child. So these are all things that are part of that of the of the of the equation of Louis the Sixteenth. And I, the really thing that I struck me was when before she is queen. While she is still Dauphine, Marie Antoinette goes to Paris. This is a pivotal moment when her entrance in Paris. She goes with Louis, and she and and the crowds go wild for her because um, you know she's the, they're the future of the monarchy. And there's this huge crowd there, and she's writing to her mother about it. And she says, she says, "Oh, you would not believe. Uh, thank you so much for making me, you know, making me future queen of France. This is this is wonderful. We had all these this huge crowd, and the Dauphin behaved so well." The, behind, the, the, the Dauphin behaved well, very well. And you think to yourself, the Dauphin was 19 at that point. What does she mean he behaved very well? You know, what was he going to do? Well, apparently he might have been kind of freaked out by all of this. And, and, and because there's a lot of noise, autism, I think there's, you're, you're getting your sensations differently. And he might have, he might have, done something that she felt embarrassed him, but no, no, he was fine. This is not how you talk about a 19-year-old guy who's going to be king. And I'm interested um, to talk a little more about the ramifications then of um, what it meant for their marriage and um, evidence of then other relationships that come out. (laughs) Okay, so, so it's very clear that Marie Antoinette did, she did not love Louis as a husband. Please try and think about this this is just a sad case, okay? I don't see that there is a lot of fault here. It's not Louis's fault that he, you know, Louis loved Marie Antoinette, but he could not fulfill the role of um, romantic love. And Marie Antoinette is a 14, when she gets there, she's 14, but when she's like 19, 20, she's like a college girl, a beautiful college girl, and she is married to this guy who she can never look at it as a romantic figure. And she's in France, which is all about, you know, l'amour, l'amour. So she, this is, she understands that she is going to um, never have romantic love. Now, I will say that when she started in the beginning, uh, and she accepted that. That's why she never fought any of the caricatures of her as being, because she knew it was almost an irony to her that, that they would make her into a harlot when she is the one person in France who's having no sex. But then after she has her first um, daughter and her, her first daughter, comes this guy to court, this Swedish Count, count Furston. And, you know, she's in her 20s. And sometimes when love hits, there's just nothing to do about it. She just, this was true love on both of their sides, well, both of their parts. And he did try to stay away. He went to fight the war in America, and, but it, and that he was gone for a long time. But then when the war was over, he just couldn't stay away. And they came together until she did have this lover. And this is known. This is known that she had this lover. And I think all you have to do is, now that you, you know, and, and it, I, I, of course, they haven't, um, 
done any DNA testing on this, but I'm sure her second son, who is the eventually will be the Dauphin who dies in the who dies during the revolution, um, and her youngest daughter who dies early, those were both fathered, those children were both fathered by Count Fersen. Count Fersen was with her. Very often he stayed in the castle with her. When she was attacked at um in Versailles, he was there in the bedroom with her, most likely, it seems. These are all things that only happen because Louis is a different kind of, a, you know, Louis has this disorder where he is not, no other French king would have tolerated that behavior, but Louis tolerates behavior that other French kings don't. When Marie Antoinette um, wanted, when she was younger and she wanted to go out um, early, I wanted to go out club, wanted to go out to Paris to the theater and, and go out to a supper dinner afterwards or whatever she was going to do. And um, Louis, but Louis liked to spend an, like the hours, Louis went to bed every night at 11. So he would come and spend from like 10 to 11 with her. Um, and she had to do that every night. But one night she just really wanted to get away. So she turned the clock back. She turned the clock from the, and Louis was all fanatical about time. He was very interested in clockworks and, um, so Louis thought that it was 11 o'clock um, and went home so she could go out an hour earlier and w- went back to his own rooms. And when he went back to his own rooms, he discovered that the, she'd played this trick on him. Now, I'm going to tell you, nobody plays a trick like that on Louis the 14th or Louis the 15th or Louis the 13th or Louis the 12th. Nobody and gets away with it. You know, you would be, that's, that's, in, um, not treason, but at least majesty. You know, you, you're going to be exiled or something's going to happen to you. Nothing, nothing happens. So because he he needs Marie Antoinette. He cannot function without Marie Antoinette by that time. She is his emotional support um, throughout his entire life. Some, but there are times in the, in the revolution where Louis shuts down completely and doesn't speak. And everybody has to go to Marie Antoinette and tell her what they want. And then Marie Antoinette has to go to Louis and say very softly and gently and, and reassuringly, this is what we're going to do and blah, blah, and And that's, and she's basically ends up having to run the government because Louis has shut down. If we can zoom uh, back out again to look at these four women uh, as a whole, as you do, well, they obviously have their own stories throughout your book that are told very well. But um, if we can look at them at a whole at this time, what were, what was their sort of interactions like or how easily were they able to maintain mother-daughter relationships at this time? Well, while she was alive, Maria Teresa, Maria Teresa, Maria Christina, the elder one, who becomes, she was not only governor general of Hungary, she becomes also governor general of, of um, Brussels and Bel- in Belgium and the Austrian Netherlands. So she has to also fight the French Revolution. Um, Maria Christina was nearby her mother all, all the time because her mother needed her. And so th- their relationship was very strong all through Maria Theresa's life. Maria Carolina would get, would get letters from her mother, was sent off to this to Ferdinand with, with a long letter um, explaining what to, how, to, how to live, um, what she should, how to rule and things like that. Um, and and so there were, and Maria Christina tried very hard to keep the family together after her mother died. She would, and even while her mother was alive, she went down to Italy, checked on everybody, 
made, brought back pictures of the grandchildren, portraits, and, and showed them to her mother. And she tried, Maria Christina tried to um, be close to Marie, Marie Antoinette, but Marie Antoinette was the young, was younger by, and by a lot. And unfortunately, while she was growing up, Maria uh, Christina had to take over the role of disciplinarian every now and then, as an older child does sometimes with the younger ones. And so Marie Antoinette resented that, and she thought she tattled to her mother about her. And Marie Antoinette, on top of having um, Maria Christina looking over her shoulder, Maria Theresa sends actually a surrogate, like a spy on on. Um, and advise and spy on Marie Antoinette, which is how we know so much about her life, because this this guy would just sit there and write down reports all the time, every day, a report to, to Maria Theresa. Maria Theresa tried to do some long distance parenting through um through her through her um minister, to her through through her ambassador. And um that didn't work because Maria Teresa did not understand what the court, what the French court was like. And so Marie Antoinette, who was there, um, did understand what was going on and listened less and less and less to her mother. And Maria Carolina and Marie Antoinette um, never got to see each other. They were the closest of friends when they were children. And then they were kind of wrenched apart and they never, they, they communicated, but they never saw each other again. And Maria Carolina loved Marie Antoinette and only wanted to protect her and tried so hard. Marie Antoinette, um, Maria Christina and Maria Carolina helped to orchestrate the failed escape from, um, from Paris that, that Louis and um, Marie Antoinette tried with the help of Count Fersen. And, and it just, it was, just didn't happen. But they did, they were very conscious, the women, the daughters were so conscious of being the daughters of Maria Maria Teresa. There was a a pride in there. There was a way of behaving that they they thought they they should, you know, Marie Antoinette, say what you like about her. She stood down the crowds. She protected her. The the, crowd, the crowd that broke into the Tuileries, they came all, they came for hours. She had her eight-year-old son on a table in front of her, her 13-year-old daughter behind her, and she with and she just held off that crowd with her demeanor. And when she went and you know when she went to the um to the guillotine, she did never broke. She just she climbed those steps and she was a, she was a queen. And I you gotta respect that. She was she was no more suited to rule than than Louis was. I mean you really did not want someone like Marie Antoinette making tax policy. This is, uh, but she was forced to. She, she, it wasn't that she, that she, um, that she didn't want to try. I think she just couldn't do it. There are there are people who you know who, with the best of intentions, aren't suited to it, and she wasn't suited to it, and she it all came down on her. And that's why she's the face. She's the face of the um, of the monarchy of the ancien regime. She's this because Louis was not there. It was like Louis wasn't there. He, he's there, of course, but he the, the the populace never sees his face. She's the person that it, that appears to be running things, and that's and so she gets blamed for that. And. But they were all definitely the daughters of, they all understood what mom had done and they tried to live up to that 
reputation. Yes, it's quite a legacy. And if we can perhaps um, touch on that a little more, you've already alluded to her, her death. Um, wh- how, how does that come about? And what is her, her legacy today, particularly in Vienna? Maria Theresa. Oh, yes. Me. Sorry, Maria yes. Theresa. <laughs> um, so Maria Theresa at the she Maria Theresa had the problem that her son, remember I told you about her son, she he's pretty arrogant. He believes he can do everything himself. And he um he also he's also affected by his mother because here his mother at 23 fought off half of Europe and He's still in his 30s and she doesn't let him really rule except for she gives him like the military stuff. So he tries to take over Bavaria and gets in them gets them into a big it, it not into a war but it would have been a war but Joseph doesn't like to fight either and um but the Maria Maria Theresa was just devastated that he was doing so badly at it and that he might have exposed himself to danger in a war. And it really um, took a lot out of her. Her husband had already died. She wore black for, you know, she was ready to, to die. So um, when she does, it's in, it's right after this war and they had had to raise taxes and for, for, for Joseph's war. And they kind of blamed Maria Theresa Vienna, but, very soon after Joseph ascended to the throne on his own, they realized what a gem they had had in Maria Theresa. And, and today in Vienna, there's a huge statue of her. And when the tour groups come, she is, she is remembered, you know, uh, it's all about her. And it's, that's right. You know, and some, she, she was a pivotal figure in that period. And I do believe that she held off the, um, Frederick the Great, who knows where he would have gone if she hadn't been there and so dedicated to stopping him. And and that whole opportunistic way of dealing with um, foreign relations. Frederick had no, couldn't care less about treaties, gave his word, broke it, broke it again, broke it again, broke it again. And he just was completely amoral. And the result was they were always fighting. There was, there was, they said Prussia was a, was an army with a kingdom rather than a kingdom with an army. And she she really tried to stop that so that she could focus on the domestic, so she could improve her subjects' lives, improve healthcare, improve education, all that stuff. And, and she was trying to um, free the serfs when she uh, died. So in all those ways, she was she was a really excellent ruler. Well, she's certainly a, a fascinating character. And, and I feel, though that's a good point to end on, I also feel slightly sad that we barely scratched the surface of Maria um, Christina Mimi's story or or Maria Carolina, actually. But um, before we uh, round up, is there sort of anything else you'd like to um, mention to our listeners um, before we mention the book again? Yes, I would like to say one thing. So, so Marie Antoinette, everybody said... You know, it is true. She wasn't a good queen. She did a lot of things wrong and she gets all the blame. Maria Carolina, she did everything right. And today she is reviled, okay, in 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 in, in Italy. She all she tried to do was fight Napoleon and she did try very hard to rule her kingdom in a in a 
a way that was um, that helped the people. She tried improvement. So I think women just had they have they are damned if they do and damned if they don't. I mean, here you had someone who did everything right and, and is hated and everyone thing wrong and was hated. So maybe women are just in power are just hated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not, I thought you were going to end on a positive note. That's lovely. <laughs> no, they're no, not. No. But I mean, you, you have a much bigger, yeah. you have a much bigger um, problem. You have a much bigger nut to crack if you're, mm-hmm. if you're a woman. You have, to, you have to work much harder to get, um, to get, praise for or to be seen as a good ruler i think yes no that that makes that makes a lot of sense sadly and um we uh as i say i hope this is a really lovely introduction for our listeners to these uh four fascinating women but uh for now i will say that in the shadow of the empress the defiant lives of maria Theresa, mother of marie antoinette and her daughters is is out now and uh thank you so much nancy for your time in talking to us about your book today Thank you so much. I loved it. That was Nancy Goldstone. In the Shadow of the Empress, The Defiant Lives of Maria Theresa, Mother of Marie Antoinette and Her Daughters, is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson and is available from tomorrow. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. On Friday, we'll be exploring some of the most extraordinary hoaxes of the 18th century.